Welcome to Provcast, uh, the regular podcast of Providence, a journal of Christianity and American foreign policy. My name is Drew Griffin. I'm the managing editor here at Providence. And with me uh, today, I have Faisal Atani, who is the resident senior fellow with the Atlantic Council's Rafiq Hariri Center for the Middle East. Uh, he's also an adjunct professor of Middle Eastern politics at George Washington University. He's been widely uh, published and quoted in the New York Times and Time and Politico and the Washington Post and CNN and U.S. News and Huffington Post and the Wall Street Journal. If I missed any anybody, I, I'm trying to get get everybody. I don't I know. give you all the credit. Okay, <laughs> well, my all PR right. department makes me keep track. Okay, <laughs> all right, excellent. Um, and uh, has a MA in Strategic Studies and International Economics from John Hopkins University, a Certificate of Public Policy from Georgetown University, and a BA in Business from the American University of Beirut. Faisal, thank you for being on. Thank you, Drew. Uh, it's a it's a privilege to to have you um, come and kind of speak to us. One of the things that Providence does is we kind of exist to equip uh, the American mind to engage the real world, and uh, we do so kind of from a a uh, Christian convictional perspective, trying to inform our listeners and readers. But one of the things, one of the ways that we do that is that we try and 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 gather together minds and and experts on um, relevant foreign policy fields. You and I met in Oxford uh, University in, in August at a uh, a conference that we were both attending, and I was sitting there listening to you at a, at a panel kind of give a um, uh, kind of circumnavigate the Middle East uh, presentation where you uh, provided context and clarity to what is going on in the Middle East. And so I thought this is someone who we need to have and, and someone we need to uh, speak to. So I'm grateful that you could join us. Uh, you know, your your specialty is is kind of Middle Eastern politics, and so I want to jump right into that field and right into that arena. Um, and I want to talk about kind of two major uh, poles of, of news, two major um, uh, foc- focuses uh, foci here. Um, we've got uh, Saudi Arabia first, right, and and the entire. Um, Jamal Khashoggi uh, issue there. And then uh, I want to kind of bring our readers up uh, as, as we kind of close today on Syria and like the latest there and kind of the situation there, since I know you have a lot of expertise with that. So let's let's start with Saudi Arabia. Um, uh, there's been an evolution over the last uh, several days um, and the last uh, the last several weeks since Jamal Khashoggi disappeared, right, in the uh, Saudi Arabian embassy there in, in, in Turkey and the consulate. And there's been this slow trickle of kind of news and evidence and information. Um, uh, Erdogan, the uh, president of, of Turkey, has, has released kind of his his statement uh, this this last week concerning uh, the Saudis and, and some of the evidence that they have. Can you kind of just give us uh, a little bit of an uh, overhead picture of, of where we are uh, generally of how the United States and Saudi Arabia, their relationship, how it's being fleshed down the light of this controversy? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Drew. Uh, with uh, I'll caveat whatever I say about this episode uh, with the fact that all my data essentially comes from Turkish intelligence leaks, uh, and Turkey is not a an impartial actor in any of this. Uh, but this is the information we have publicly, uh, and uh, my own assessment is that when it comes to evidence of a serious crime that took place in the Saudi consulate, I think there I think the evidence is there. And I think uh, Turkey has something explosive up its sleeve. It hasn't revealed the full extent of it. So let's proceed with the assumption, actually, that that there's a real crisis, uh, that the Saudis have not been able to refute or uh, or deny very easily or credibly. What that means for the U.S.-Saudi relationship, I mean, the U.S.-Saudi relationship for decades was based on uh, a, f- a few things. Uh, f- firstly, above all, of course, 
the free flow of oil uh, from the Arabian Peninsula, which remains economically vital for uh, for the, the global economy and therefore for the United States. But also more broadly, there's been this understanding that the Saudis can be relied on to generally tow the American foreign policy line, as well as keep their own house in order. Uh, in order, and by that I mean control terrorism within its own territory, at least, uh, and uh, maintain a kind of a lineage of regime stability from one place to the other, and not be a kind of erratic, bold actor, such as some of the more problematic states in the Middle East, like Egypt under Nasser or you know, Iraq under Saddam Hussein, things of that sort. Uh, and so that's kind of the bedrock of the relationship, that the Saudis are different, that uh, that they're reliable, and that they're wise, even if we don't always agree with them about how they govern themselves. And we don't, obviously, always agree with them. What's happened now is this kind of, this episode is, is not an isolated episode. And if it were, I think things would be a bit different. Uh, what What seems to have happened here is, on the one hand... Uh, under the leadership of the current crown, plin- crown prince, for simplicity's sake, let's, he's MBS, those are his initials, at least. Uh, at, on the one hand, the Saudis have created these expectations in the form of MBS that Saudi Arabia is now going to embark on a, a modernizing path uh, that will make it look more, slightly more Western, if not in its politics, at least in its uh, social norms, in, in, in genuine economic liberalization, and things generally the United States likes to see, especially in an ally. Uh, and at the same time, MBS has, under, has undertaken a foreign policy that's characterized by a series of consecutive blunders, uh, each more embarrassing than the last. And, for example... There's the war in Yemen that uh, Saudi Arabia has been stuck in for a few years now. I mean, arguably, you could say they had no choice but to enter. I'll leave that out of the argument. Uh, the fact of the matter is the war is not going very well, and uh, there's a human, humanitarian catastrophe going on in Yemen that the Saudis can't get out of. And this is very much MBS's war. Uh, a few months ago in Lebanon, uh, the, well, in Saudi Arabia, rather, the uh, MBS and his team detained the former prime, the prime minister of Lebanon at the time, Saad Hariri, and essentially forced him on television to resign the premiership uh, because he had done things vis-a-vis Iran and Hezbollah that the Saudis did not like. Uh, and this is the sort of thing, basically, we don't usually see from Saudi Arabia. And now with this allegation that, that they detained and killed a high-profile journalist with a Washington Post column in the Saudi embassy simply for writing, I think, what most of us would see as kind of mild criticism uh, on on that platform. That is unprecedented for the Saudis. That kind of particular behavior is unprecedented. It's embarrassing for their allies. Uh, And now we have to, as the United States, contend with what do we do about managing this relationship, given the reputational risks involved, uh, and also re-examining our assumptions about Saudi Arabia, under this particular leadership as an ally, is this somebody we can trust to sail the kingdom through the next 50 years, potentially, uh, and through a very, very troubled region? Uh, Or is this guy actually undermining the key foundation of the relationship, which is the smoothness and predictability of it? 
Right. So what's fascinating is the uh, to me is just the the changing nature of the U.S. relationship with Saudi Arabia. So not only you know has the relationship been predicated on the availability of of energy and oil as America's become you know increasingly energy independent, we're no longer kind of bound to them in the in the same way. Although they're they're providing an oil hungry world with um, you know the energy that it needs, and so there's an economic interest broadly for us. There's not that kind of direct tie to where you know they don't hold us kind of by the scruff of the neck in terms of being able to embargo and then you know affect the um, the U.S. economy in the way that they they used to. Um, and that our relationship is is largely largely been based on the fact that we view them as as a real um, source of stability in a region where like predictability and stability are almost just non-existent. And one of the things that I think you've alluded to just now and are kind of pointing to that I want to kind of flesh out is is what if you were going to kind of project out and predict into the future if if we look at MBS Mohammed bin Salman like his uh, relative unpredictability at this point his his impulsiveness as kind of a a young ruler who is who's who's being given the reins and has this kind of impulse to have a a PR campaign and like a, a presence uh, a public persona to the West that is advanced, that's that's liberalizing, that is um, modernizing this this very kind of I would say, you know, backward, almost pre-modern nation, um, and yet the the reality of, of who he is as as a, a leader of a totalitarian regime that is incredibly oppressive keeps kind of peeking out, <laughs> and it keeps showing up, and it keeps you know, he kind of keeps revealing his his true cards. And so, is there if you look into the future, if you pro- kind of project into the future, you know, if he continues to be unstable, what what remedy does does the United States have? Like, what kind of leverage does the United States have, or even the world community have, to kind of um, uh, you know, force the Saudis to to rein him in, or even like replace him in terms of uh, leadership. The thing is, ultimately, this decision comes down to. Uh, let me first outline outline the fabric that he's in in Saudi Arabia. Uh, this is an unusual trait for Saudi for a Saudi leader to have uh, this kind of impulsive, very personality centric. Mm-hmm. approach to power. It's true that the Saudis are authoritarians, uh, and extremely so, of course. It's a, it's an absolute monarchy. Uh, but it's also true that there are kind of inbuilt, I don't want to say checks and balances, that sounds too American, but you know there are restraints on what you can get away with usually in Saudi Arabia, because it's understood that this is a family enterprise, first of all, and that it's also based on tribal and family relationships very important business relationships with key business families. It's a pat- it's a very complex and large pat- patronage network. That's what Saudi Arabia is, essentially. It's not one person saying what has to happen, or even two right. or three. Uh, so those mechanisms, those things are exactly the things MBS is going after, and he's doing it very deliberately. He doesn't believe in this because he believes that these things would hamper the kind of reforms that he needs to do. Right. That's the most generous explanation. And so this and, this would be not to kind of interrupt, but no, to interject please. like the, his detaining of you know uh, numerous members of the royal family and the Ritz, Carlton and Riyadh, like which got you know uh, sort of a, a mixed international response because he was he was detaining them against their will, but he was doing it in the Ritz. I mean, you know, it was a very lavish kind of prison. Um, but he was in, imprisoning members of his family, members of his kind of administration that would. Would have ostensibly been um, uh, roadblocks to what he was trying to accomplish. Would that be, from his perspective, you know, correct? Yeah, I think I think this is the most generous reading 
if you if you were to take him at his word right. and and his team at their word, that's what it was about. Right. Uh, of course, there's an element here of just political centralization and mm-hmm. authoritarianism. Right. Uh, but that's not unusual for that to be paired with this kind of ambitious mm-hmm. reform reform uh, projects. Uh, so I don't doubt the sincerity about some of these reforms. Uh, I think this is a silly way to go about doing it, but that's just my opinion. Uh, the point of the matter is that, uh, and the reason I bring this up is because there are a lot of people upset at MBS. And uh, I think uh, both at the elite level, but also at the popular level, uh, it's not that everybody loves this guy. And if you talk to Saudis, they will tell you that uh, some people are 100% behind him. A lot of people think the the guy is leading the country into a disaster economically and uh, and socially and maybe even politically. So there there are plenty of places opposition could come from. Uh, and it, and that is not unprecedented for there to be extreme turmoil within the royal family. It's happened in Saudi history before. In fact, the second Saudi kingdom collapsed because of infighting within mm-hmm. the Al Saud family. Having said that, uh, he has spent the last year and a half putting his people in key institutions, particularly security forces, intelligence, things of that sort. His his inner circle is composed largely of people who are actually his friends and who hold him up very high regard and uh, who, who tell him that he's the greatest and uh, who are, I guess, loyal to him. Uh, the, the person who could make a decision, not based on coercion purely, that MBS has to go is certainly no one in Washington, D.C. It's King Salman, right. his father, who gave him this this portfolio to begin with and allowed him to run with it for the past year and a half. I don't know enough about the inner workings of the royal family to tell you what would happen if King Salman made that decision. Uh, but he's still the king of the country. Right. And that is a big deal in Saudi Arabia. That institution holds enormous power traditionally and reputationally. What we would, would do if we wanted to push things in that direction, I mean, we have our strategic relationship with them. Uh, the Saudi kingdom is... And, you know, I don't mean this in a judgmental manner either way, dependent on the United States for its security uh, regionally. Uh, and without us, it would have to seek it elsewhere. Right. And I'm not saying that's impossible, but they wouldn't. They don't want to do that. Right. They don't want to go there. Uh, they, they want the United States. The relationship is very deep and very important for both parties. Uh, so we could put diplomatic, economic, or security pressure on them. Uh, uh, I think the point is... Ultimately, whether Salman believes that this will just blow over and things will go back to normal or at least an acceptable level, or whether he believes that MBS is a liability for the kingdom and therefore to make a move against him and to put a more crude scenario forward, which we can never rule out anywhere in the world, including in Saudi Arabia, is somebody might just go after him physically. He might get assassinated uh, by a cousin, by... uh, Somebody in the armed forces, these things are possible always. Uh, So I hold that also as a possibility. Right. One of the things that uh, intrigues me kind of about your analysis and one of the things I appreciate about you is your ability to kind of see the bigger picture. So what I want to do is kind of telescope out from Saudi Arabia and begin to bring in other actors in the region. Um, Mainly, let's start with Turkey. You know, they, they are presumably killed um, Jamal Khashoggi in Turkey, right, and dismembered him there at the Saudi consulate. Um, that uh, 
kind of defies explanation of why they would do it in that country and why they would kind of, uh, I think, um, risk bringing uh, Turkey into into the scenario. But let's talk a little bit about like Turkey's the way that Turkey has responded so far, kind of up until this point, and kind of what Turkey's uh, what the Turkish agenda may be. Erdogan is has obviously consolidated power. He has his own kind of uh, agenda and and. Uh, uh, dreams for kind of uh, Turkish supremacy, I think, in the region, which extends into Syria, which extends into um, uh, kind of the broader Middle East and is meeting up with a lot of resistance from the United States, um, where it just kind of play out how this this is affecting um, uh, Turkey and Tur- the Turkish response. The Turks are playing a actually quite a subtle game here. They have a lot, of, they, if they have the intelligence they say they have, they could just drop a bombshell and release it all and put everybody into severe crisis mode, right. including Saudi Arabia as a country, right. if, they say, if they have what they say they have. They haven't done that. And, mm-hmm. and it, what they've been doing is kind of leaking these, the, this intelligence. At the same time, they've been saying all the right things about the Saudi king and how Saudi Arabia is an important country. Right. Essentially, what they do is they want MBS out or cut down to size. And the reason they want that isn't so much Saudi-Turkish rivalry, uh, because that would play out explicitly. Right. Uh, it's that he himself, MBS, is uh, is deeply, deeply anti-Islamist and anti-Muslim Brotherhood and anti-kind of Islamic political mobilization. And here I want to be careful. He's not he's not anti-Islam, right? Uh, nor is he anti is a fundamentalist reading of the religion, right? Which is what the what the kingdom has always had. Sure, uh, he is anti-democratic Islamist mobilization. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, and that's what gave us Erdogan, right? You know, uh, he doesn't like Islamists, and none mm-hmm. of the Gulf states really do, except mm-hmm. for Qatar. Mm-hmm. Uh, him and the UAE share that in common, right? And uh, ultimately, that collides with uh, not just the fact that Erdogan is an Islamist, and he he is sort of an Islamist. I wouldn't say as his defining mm-hmm. character, but that his vision regionally of Islamist mobilization and into power through Islamic democracy or Islamist democracy uh, is a direct threat to MBS's vision, which is exactly the opposite, Right. which is that this is the most dangerous element in the region. Uh, And, you know, I assume also there must be a personality element here, uh, but I think it's mostly that. Mm -hmm. I think it's mostly that. And uh, and he holds the cards to make life difficult for MBS or make it a bit easier. Uh, I'm sure there was the ideal outcome for him would be Saudi Arabia remains stable, a partnership with Saudi Arabia endures and deepens, and MBS is out of the picture. Mm-hmm. Right. So let's branch out then to like Iran and Russia, you know, two other actors, both of which up until this point have been relatively silent uh, on on the Jamal Khashoggi affair. They've not really issued any kind of condemnations. Iran just recently uh, did kind of come out and, and kind of, again, without kind of explanation or understanding um, of how they could do this morally condemned uh, what uh, Saudi Arabia has, has uh, presumably done. And uh, Russia has remained kind of completely silent other than just kind of officially buying whatever the Saudi line of the day is. Um, kind of talk about the motivations of each one of those countries and and their their roles that they're playing kind of in this region vis-a-vis this, this current crisis. Yeah, the Iranians have a relatively simple situation on their hands. Uh, whoever's in power in Saudi Arabia for Iran is, to them, hostile, by definition, just because of the history and geopolitical rivalry between these two countries. 
whether it's MBS or Salman, etc., it's all bad. Uh, I will say that MBS in particular is probably a bit worse, not because he's a particularly capable and threatening guy, but because his rise has coincided with uh, the Trump administration's endorsement and support of Saudi Arabia as an actual ally, strategic partner against Iran. Right. Uh, so before, we kind of used to see them as something we needed to protect from the Iranians, mm -hmm. uh, and maybe you know a place we could sell weapons to that could be used in a conventional exchange. Now the the relationship is has been envisioned by this administration as an actual partnership uh, against the Iranians. And, and with, with Saudi Arabia being the kind of proximate pointy end of the spear. Right. Um, so for them, MBS is also a package, a part of a larger package of problems, and particularly his relationship with the United States and where that's pushing him. For them, their best interest right now is to just keep quiet mm -hmm. and watch the Saudis embarrass themselves or watch right. MBS embarrass himself and watch the Americans struggle with what to do about it. Mm -hmm. There is nothing more Iran would love in the world, and I mean that literally from a geopolitical <laughs> perspective, than for the Saudi-U.S. relationship to break down. Right. Because that is literally the, their main block to seeing their regional influence reach what they view as a natural, natural scope. Right. Uh, it's the United States military commitment. How do you think that this uh, current affair and the instability that um, uh, MBS's actions have, have brought into the... Uh, debate how this is going to affect kind of the U.S. Saudi Israeli um, uh, factor. So you have this this over the last couple of years, and especially with the Trump administration, kind of a, a, a partnership of trying to uh, get Saudi Arabia Saudi Arabia to leverage you know their influence over the Palestinians and over kind of the broader Arab world to. Um, uh, force some sort of kind of uh, peace negotiation or some kind of two-state solution or something to um, uh, to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. You have, like, I thought it was fascinating when the U.S. moved the embassy from Tel Aviv to uh, Jerusalem, there was almost near silence, you know, on the part of the broader Arab community, even even from Saudi Arabia. They said almost nothing. There was no rioting in the streets. And, you know, within hours of, of moving the embassy, you know, Israeli jets fly off and, and bomb numerous targets in Iran. You know, there seems to be a, um, you know, we're going to let Israel kind of do what they need to do and use them as a cudgel against, you know, our common enemy, Iran. What do you see this this current instability as being uh, you know, put, putting this this partnership in a precarious position, or what? Do you, if you were going to project out the future of this sort of uh, interaction between the United States and Saudi Arabia and Israel, where, where would that fall now if it becomes more insta unstable? You know, in my in my opinion, this was always uh, a really a, a long shot that right. this would produce results uh, for a number of reasons. Uh, the uh, the uh, I know the Americans were very eager through Jared Kushner and that outreach to get something on the table for the Palestinians that they'd accept and that the Saudis could back and that the Israelis would be happy with. I think there was always an overestimation of how important Saudi Arabia was in this problem. Mm. Uh, it's true that they have money and they can spend it on the Palestinian Authority. This is not a problem that can be solved with money. And, right. it, and if it was, it would have been solved already. Right. Uh, there, this is something much deeper between the Palestinians and right. Israelis. The United States is obviously very important in it. Um, but Saudi Arabia does not, in my mind, as somebody who's spent time in the region and with this problem, Saudi Arabia is not the Arab 
the Arab component of this problem. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, that right. was at some point Egypt. You know, now arguably the front line of the Arab-Israeli conflict is actually Iran, not an right. Arab, not an Arab country at all. Right. Uh, whereas the surrounding countries around Israel are either broken, like mm-hmm. Syria, or barely countries like Lebanon, mm-hmm. or can barely feed themselves like Egypt. Right. Uh, or Jordan, which is a partner. Right. Uh, it's these countries that are essential to this solution, uh, not uh, not not Saudi Arabia. So I always thought it was uh, it was overreach, and I didn't think it was a something that lent itself to economic solution very well. Uh, but the truth of the matter remains that uh, MBS doesn't seem to care that much about this problem, and would have liked the Palestinians to just say, "Okay, we'll take." This package, I don't right. know what the details of it are, and and let's get on with our lives, you know. Um, and uh, the fact that I don't know whether the Palestinians were going to play ball, I don't think they were going to, uh, but uh, the Israelis were certainly happier with that than with the status quo of the past few decades, because uh, that at least held out the possibility of normalization with with the Arab states. Right. Uh, But uh, I think this does complicate it, true. And a lot of this is kind of personally based on Jared Kushner Mm -hmm. and his relationship with the Saudis and whether Mm -hmm. they trust him. Right. Uh, With MBS, rather, not the Saudis. Right. Uh, And let's see how that's affected as these pressures... These pressures on MBS grow. Right. It gets less likely, definitely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My guest is uh, Faisal Atani, a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come, to come back, I want to talk a little bit about Syria, uh, the situation there of, uh, you know, where we've been and where we're going in that region when we come back. Back to Provcast, the regular podcast of Providence, a journal of Christianity and American foreign policy, equipping American minds to engage the real world. And one of the ways uh, that we're equipping you today is by speaking to Faisal Atani, who is a resident senior fellow with the Atlantic Council. We've been speaking about the Middle East. We've been talking about uh, Saudi Arabia and Turkey and the Jamal Khashoggi affair and and kind of the broader um, instability in the region. vis-a-vis U.S. policy. And now we're going to shift over a little bit to Syria. And um, I've always I've appreciated kind of your perspective on this, uh, Faisal, and just your your uh, ability to kind of relate the, the Syrian conflict kind of to the broader um, um, issues of the Middle East and all the, the actors involved. And, and Syria is one of these, you know, um, I say funny, you know, unique stories in that it kind of simmered for a while underneath the radar in the United States and, and the American public and the West in general really didn't pay a whole lot of attention to uh, the Syrian conflict when it began in, in 2011. You know, 2012, as it began to um, uh, kind of spiral out of control, and as ISIS began to get involved, and other actors began to kind of speak in, um, you know, and millions up to I think three and a half to four million Syrians have fled and and headed to Europe and and to um, you know countries in and around the Middle East. There, you know, it got the world's attention, and so as the the fighting really broke out, as the refugees began to flee on mass, you know, everyone began to pay attention, but. We're 
we're entering into this kind of phase, especially with other news stories like the Khashoggi affair and other um, the U.S. midterm elections. So many news stories are kind of pushing Syria to the periphery. And it's kind of just we reached a point in saying, you know, the war is almost over. It's it's kind of getting itself you know settled out. We don't really care about it anymore. And yet there is there's still a conflict going on. There's still, I think, oh, close to 3000 uh, U.S. troops that are involved in the in the fighting in Syria. You have Russia that's that's still very much engaged. You have um, uh, refugees that are still uh, kind of tormenting um, um, European governments and taxing uh, European governments and the regional uh, neighbors. So, I mean, this is still a huge crisis. And just because we don't have a lot of, of kind of mental headspace and, and room on our radar screen for it, it's still a huge crisis. Can you talk a little bit about where we're at right now with Syria and kind of where we're headed in the in the interim? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the the attention we paid to Syria was mostly focused on our military campaign against uh, the terrorist group ISIS, uh, which is uh, now, for, at least from kind of kinetic operational perspective, wrapping up. Uh, those guys those guys have been beaten. Uh, and uh, a bunch of new questions have arose in their place, but they kind of require a little more, little more uh, engagement, a little more analysis to understand. Uh, there's a lot of things going on in Syria right now, and a lot of stakes there as well. And, and they and they do impact either directly or directly the United States. Uh, obviously, the most salient reality in the Syrian conflict is that this is a conflict between the regime and an op- and an armed opposition. And that armed opposition has been all but defeated. So we're left with a big chunk of the country that's still controlled by the Assad regime uh, that is in pretty horrible economic shape uh, and contains millions of displaced uh, Syrians uh, and has no prospect internationally or locally of attracting the kind of funding and reconstruction efforts the country needs to get back on its feet, which means that that migrant crisis... Uh, the, uh, the, of the internally displaced as well as the refugees abroad will continue. And that feeds in uh, not only to human misery, obviously, but also the enormous burden socioeconomically they're placing on their neighboring countries of Syria. And, uh, and the kind of uh, very strange uh, but important dynamic that's, uh, that's uh, arisen in Europe as a result of having kind of you know, immigrants from another religion, another ethnicity, another culture, who are suddenly landing in in the hundreds of thousands in European societies, and that kind of converging with European domestic politics uh, and uh, kind of reaction from the right side against against the pressures this has put on their societies. Fair enough, this is all pretty predictable when you have these kind of uh, uh, large scale human displacement, uh, but there's no end in sight to it. Uh, and when it comes to strategic matters. Uh, this is a country where uh, Russia, Iran, Turkey, and us have a direct military stake. Uh, the Iranians are the most powerful actor on the ground as a foreign uh, as a foreign force, and I, I don't mean just kind of through raw military capability, but in terms of the presence they have on the ground, their immersion in the Syrian landscape, their infra- the infrastructure they're building socially, militarily, religiously. You have the Turks, who occupy a significant chunk of the country in the north, uh, and my prediction is that those parts of the country are going to become part of Turkey. Uh, there's, they're, not, they're not going back anytime soon to, uh, to the regime. Uh, and you have the United States, which uh, controls about a third of Syria, including most of its water resources, its uh, arable land, its uh, oil resources, 
uh, in partnership with uh, Kurdish, largely Kurdish militia forces. And everybody has a different reason for being there. Turkey, because they want to stop the Kurds. Uh, Iran, because the reason they fought this war to begin with is to protect the regime and Hezbollah in Lebanon, which relies on the regime. And finally, us, because we are using it as A, a platform to keep ISIS down, and B, a way to project power against Iran. Uh, and finally, on top of all that, you have the Israeli-Iranian conflict axis, which could erupt at any point, because right. the Israelis are not comfortable with Iran building up Syria as a basically a military garrison. Uh, and that risk is kind of ever-present, and I don't see it going away, as long as Iran is, is in Syria. So there's lots going on, and, and the potential for interstate war as well, not just lots going on. I don't think it should fade from people's imagination at all. Right. So in terms of uh, the extent to which it's a, uh, you know, foreign policy priority for the United States, like, is it, um, it, what are the prospects that, you know, Bashar al-Assad is going to be able to, I think, resume complete control of his country and establish some sort of, like, stability that could um, uh, um foster or could allow, you know, foreign investment or foreign aid. I mean, right now there's this, uh, I was visiting the Zatari refugee camp in uh, Jordan, in Northern Jordan, um, uh, which is the like the fourth largest city in Jordan right now. Uh, and it's, it's predominantly 80,000 uh, Syrian refugees and like, you know, 20,000 Jordanians that kind of service uh, that, that refugee camp. And they've been there largely since 2011, 2012, uh, at immense economic, you know, costs from the United Nations and a, a whole number of uh, refugee organizations and partnerships. And, and you know, there are uh, immense number of refugees displaced within um, uh, Syria and then all throughout Europe. And if you talk to these refugees and talk about them about returning, you know, they have, they have really no, there's no love loss there. I mean, they, they, they miss their homes and, and they, they lament the fact that they were you know, forced to uh, kind of migrate and, and, and leave, but their, their towns were destroyed. Their homes were destroyed and burnt. There, there are no cities really for them to return to. So absent major like humanitarian aid to Syria, I, I see it as uh, that refugee crisis not abating at all. So it, what are the prospects that, you know, Assad is going to be able to establish enough of a um, uh, government that can sustain uh, kind of support and has some kind of legitimacy um, in order to potentially allow any of these refugees to return or any of the crisis to kind of abate? Well, here, uh, uh, here, our policy as the United States is... Uh, a bit in tension with the immediate, what would what would seem to be the immediate humanitarian uh, again. I don't think these things are going to happen in Syria for a couple of reasons. First of all, uh, there is no place for many of these people to go back to, as you said, uh, and 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 no prospect of that changing, right. uh, because if not if nothing else, because of a lack of capital right. uh, and the ability to do to change it. B, uh, the regime doesn't want these people to come back uh, because these people, first of all, the regime was already overburdened with people. Right. Uh, and that's one of the reasons there was a revolution, in fact, uh, with people in uh, uh, taxing their social welfare system, their natural resources, the bureaucracy, the infrastructure of the country. It was a mess. Uh, and now the regime finds itself with essentially five million less people. Uh, and these people largely came from the areas of Syria that were destroyed. And those areas are largely 
either pro-opposition areas or areas with some kind of passive sympathy for the opposition. Uh, and in the regime's eyes, why should they take them back? Uh, this is something that's, uh, I'm not speculating, this is something that top leadership has said. Uh, Bashar al-Assad himself said when he was uh, when he was giving a speech to parliament last year uh, that it's true that we paid a very high price for this war and for winning it, uh, but the truth is we ended up with a purer Syria. And what he meant by that was, I mean, some people look, looked at it as a kind of ethnic cleansing or, you know, he's Alawite and he got rid of the Sunnis. That's not right. quite true. Right. Uh, what he meant by, is that the only real Syrians are the Syrians that support the regime. Right. And Everyone, they stayed. Yeah, and everybody right. else is a traitor. Right. Uh, so he's fine with that. Even one of his most senior security, uh, in fact, his most senior security uh, security personnel, uh, Jamil Hassan, he said, uh, we would rather have... Uh, 10 million Syrians than 20 million traitors in the country, you know, so right. uh, so we'll, we'll, we'll live with that situation. And in fact, the few thousand refugees in Lebanon who've tried to return, a lot of their applications are being held up by the regime or denied mm. because right. they don't want them back. Right. Uh, and finally, on top of all that, the United States policy in Syria is is basically to make sure that the regime can never feel comfortable or or that the regime victory can never be normalized and legitimized internationally. Mm-hmm. That means that the United States is going to make sure he, Bashar al-Assad gets no reconstruction money right. or nothing significant to speak right. of, uh, remains internationally isolated, that we remain militarily there, taking over and controlling a big chunk of his country, uh, and that we basically choke him. Right. That's what the current policy is. Uh, and that's also at odds with him being able to revitalize the economy and bring people back in, even assuming he wanted to. Right. Uh, so, uh, no, the future is grim. In that respect, it's bad. Uh, and we don't have a policy of you know, let's go in and get rid of Bashar al-Assad so that we can start again. If that right. were the case, then I would tell you, okay, maybe there'll be some destruction and then there'll be some reconstruction. But we're kind of frozen in place. Right. Uh, and uh, then you have, in, in the middle of all this, this kind of writhing corpse of this regime that's dependent on Iran and Russia, which can't really fund it uh, indefinitely. So that's right. where we are. What's fascinating to me is that oftentimes in the Middle East, we're comfortable with the devil we know rather than the one we don't. And uh, in, in terms of Assad, it, it, yeah, it, it amazes me that we're uh, willing to kind of isolate him. And I think force his regime to remain in, in kind of this really unstable state um, with no kind of plan of like what happens after him. I mean, I, I don't think we're like leaving it, uh, Syria in any kind of position that is that is uh, not kind of probably lend itself to there either being another coup, another attempted, you know, on, on his life, maybe an assassination or something that ends up, uh, you know, raising up something that we can't even predict yet or what that would uh, kind of look like. Um, I want really quickly, kind of as we wrap up, if you, if you had like three major um, uh, events or three major kind of uh, uh, focuses that you would want the uh, Americans uh, concerned with, like foreign policy, to kind of focus on, what are what are the three the top three things that like Americans need to be aware of, uh, especially concerning the Middle East and, and foreign policy? Like if you had to tick off the the three priorities. I'm putting you on the spot. This is kind of your, you know. That's, that's um, a fair question. Uh, I think I think the trajectory of our relationship with Saudi Arabia probably is up there. Right. It's up there. 
Uh, I think our uh, stance vis-a-vis the Iranians from the Russian lens. Right. Uh, and what we actually end up doing with that deployment. Because mm-hmm. when I look on the map, and you know, maybe I'll rant a bit about this, but when <laughs> I look on the map, uh, I see where we are physically. Right. And it's a very inorganic, unnatural situation. Right. Uh, whereby the enemy gets to decide whether or not the situation escalates. Right. Uh, so I guess as an American taxpayer, I would be asking, uh, where does this go? Right. You know, if you don't want to beat the regime, and you don't want to get out right then what if they just what if they just decide okay leave the americans there right and they get on with their life right what happens uh so if i were an american citizen uh, or a congressman congresswoman this Mm -hmm. is what i would ask uh and lastly i would this doesn't concern us as directly uh but uh because it's a bit more abstract uh but i would begin to and reflect a bit more on whether or not uh, so this administration in particular, uh, and I'm not saying, I mean, the last administration made a lot of mistakes in the Middle East, including some pretty grievous ones. But right. uh, but uh, this administration in particular is seems more comfortable operating in the space of these kind of autocratic leaders. Right. Uh, I, I don't know exactly why. It's partly personality, worldview, etc. Uh, but... What what I would say is uh, not so much that it's bad to it's bad to deal with autocrats. I mean that's the world we live in, uh, but uh, maybe don't overestimate how effective and stable these guys are. Mm-hmm. Uh, keep in mind the limitations that right. the region offers. I think one of the things we're rushing towards uh, through a kind of Trumpian lens is let them do more of the work. You know, right, uh, right now, for example, they're paying for our deployment in Syria almost. Right. You know or stabilization, stabilization efforts, at least. We want them to, you know, to buy more weapons, get their militaries in order, you know, link, it, link, link up closer from a strategic perspective. This is where the Arab-NATO idea that we keep hearing, uh, hearing about comes, comes around. The truth of the matter is, that's not where this region is. Mm-hmm. You know, these are not a bunch of Israels, right. you know, or, a bunch, or Japan's or South Korea's. Right. Or so, even Jordans, it's a, or even yeah, Jordans, right, yes, yeah. as poor and uh, as poor as it may be, even right. Jordans. Uh, this is a region where you don't have that kind of partner. Right. You could probably say Turkey is sort of it, right. and Turkey is problematic in all sorts of ways. And we've uh, we certainly not managed that relationship very well. But right. I'd just be, I, I wouldn't take this trend too far. Right. Is what I is what I mean. Right. Uh, I think it has limitations. We've been speaking to Faisal Atani, who's a resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council, the Rafiq Kariri Center for uh, the Middle East, talking about um, uh, Middle Eastern issues, trying to equip you, our listener, uh, to engage the real world. And you can follow our coverage of the Middle East and and from a Christian perspective from ProvenanceMag.com. You can follow us on Twitter at at ProvMagazine, as well as on Facebook, like us on Facebook. And Faisal, I appreciate your time and I appreciate your expertise, and thank you for joining us today. My pleasure. Thank you, Drew.